competition they're looking for, they win. Ignore them, you win. Welcome, everyone. I am Ari Ingle, the Director of Creative Community for Peace. It's a pleasure to have everyone joining us today from all around the world. Creative Community for Peace is a nonprofit entertainment industry organization comprised of prominent members of the entertainment community who have come together to promote the arts as a bridge to peace, to counter anti-Semitism within the entertainment industry, and to galvanize support against the cultural boycott of Israel. To learn about our work and to support our work, please visit ccfpeace.com. That is ccfpeace.com com or creativecommunityforpeace.com. We are glad to have all of you with us today in our public square and joining us for this installment of the Dispelling the Myth series, which is an educational series of conversations with some of the leading experts on the issues and challenges facing Israel and the Jewish people today. If you missed any of our other previous conversations, they can be found in our podcast and our YouTube page. Just please visit our website for those links. Today, we're gonna to be doing a real deep dive into Zionism and anti-Zionism from historical times to the present day. You know, I've really been looking forward to today's discussion since we scheduled this series. Um, I'm gonna be learning along with everyone else from one of the best uh, educators in the Jewish community. Um, please feel free to leave questions in the Q&A section of the chat, and I'll try to get to as many of them as possible towards the end of the discussion. We just ask that you please post only questions in the Q&A section. All other comments or ideas can just be emailed to us at info at creativecommunityforpeace.com. That's info at creativecommunityforpeace.com. Uh, so in conversation with me today is Yossi Klein-Halevi, who was a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem and a non-resident fellow of the Trends Think Tank in Abu Dhabi. Yossi co-directs the Hartman Institute's Muslim Leadership Initiative, which teaches emerging young Muslim American leaders about Judaism, Jewish identity, and Israel. Over 100 Muslim leaders have participated in this unique program. Yossi's 2013 book, Like Dreamers, won the Jewish Book Council's Everett Book of the Year Award. His latest book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, is a New York Times bestseller. He writes for leading op-ed pages in North America, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Los Angeles Times. He is also a former contributing editor to the New Republic. Yossi is frequently quoted on Israeli, Middle Eastern, Jewish fairs and leading media around the world as one of the best known lecturers on Israeli issues in the American Jewish community and on college campuses here as well. Uh, joining us all the way from Jerusalem, welcome Yossi. Thank you, Ari. Good to be with you and with all of you. Um, so to properly explore Zionism and anti-Zionism, I, I really want to take this one stage at a time. Uh, we'll probably end up focusing more a bit on where things are today, but I think it's important to start uh, from more historical times to really unpack the Jewish history with Zionism. Um, so first we'll discuss Zionism from each period and then sort of anti-Zionism from that same part of history. Um, I know we're gonna have a lot of you know, questions, so I figure we'd get right into it. Um, so let's start really in historical times. So literally from the Bar Kokhba revolt when Judea was renamed Syria-Palestinian by the Romans, and the Jews were dispersed from the land of Israel up until the time of Herzl. I know this is a really large period of time, um, and maybe it predates the use of the word Zionism. But you know what, what Zionism represents is what I want to discuss. So what was Zionism, if we're just using that term, during this time in the diaspora for the Jews? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a very interesting way to frame it, because um, Zionism uh, technically refers 
to the political movement that began in the late 19th century. But I I think you're right, Ari, to to frame this in a much more uh, broad historical uh, canvas. And uh, look, I, I, I actually think you know, when when Zionism begins, uh, when according to to the Bible, when God tells Abraham four thousand years ago, uh, leave leave your 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 father's home, the land in which you were born, your homeland, and go to the land that I will show you. So that that um, rooted at the very beginning of the Jewish story is the the move to the right. land of Israel and and there it is in in literally the first line of the beginning of Jewish history and the um I think that that Zionism as a movement of longing for return uh, which is my understanding of what Zionism is as when 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 we lived in the land in ancient times we didn't need to be Zionists we were living out our our natural reality. Uh, Zionism, to my mind, really begins with the exile to Babylon after the destruction of, uh, of the first temple. Okay. And if you read the book of Psalms, uh, it's, it's an extraordinary Zionist text. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we wept as we remembered Zion. And uh, when the Lord returned us to Zion, we were like dreamers. And so the, the, the push and pull of um, exile and return, that's really the, the stuff of Zionism. And, and so, so in that sense, you know, I think that we really see the, the loss of the land and the longing for the land beginning uh, with, with Babylon. And then, then in, um, after the destruction of the second temple, of course, the, the first temple uh, exile lasted for 70 years. And then King Cyrus of Persia uh, conquered the land and, and, and allowed the Jews to come home. Uh, it took us 1,800 years to get back the next time. Right. And the, the, um, the genius of the post-biblical uh, Judaism that emerges with the rabbis uh, the early rabbis of, of the, the first, second, third centuries, the rabbis who created the Talmud <clears throat> and really restructured Judaism. Uh, the genius of, of, of their Zionist move was to centralize the land of Israel within Jewish identity and religious observance in the absence of a direct relationship with the land of Israel. And so Jews, the the first impact that this had is that wherever Jews were in whatever part of the world, they were observing the same calendar and the same cycle. When it was raining in the land of Israel, our rainy period is from the fall to the spring, Jews everywhere in the world prayed for rain, regardless of where they were living. And so the first, the first effect of, of centralizing the land of Israel in Jewish consciousness, in, in Judaism, uh, was to unify the Jewish people in dispersion. <clears throat> but, but the rabbis took this a step further. They not only entrenched the memory of the land of Israel, 
but they entrenched the expectation of return so that, that Jews structured their holiday cycle, their, their, their religious cycle around the agricultural cycle of the land of Israel, but they structured their religious longings, their prayers around return to the land. And this created a, um, a certain tension in Jewish life because Jews were living in the past right. through, the, through the holiday cycle the memory of when we were in Israel, right. and they were living in, in the future in anticipation of return. And their actual lives were fairly miserable much of the time. Right. They, were, they were ghettoized, uh, often, often expelled, wandering from one country to the other. And so what sustained them in their miserable present was the memory of, a, of an increasingly distant past uh, and, and an abstract redemptive future. But right, that's what right. kept Judaism going. And so Zionism, the spirit of Zionism, was, was embedded uh, in Judaism. Uh, and if there's um, one more thing that I, I, I can say here, sure. which is that, that the, the um, The expectation of return uh, wasn't just passive. For, for, for most of the exile, it was. But every so often, you have an outbreak in, in different parts of the diaspora of the sudden appearance of a messianic pretender right. who is promising the Jewish people to return them home. The, the most famous was Shabbatai Tzvi of the 17th century, who galvanized the entire diaspora. Hundreds of thousands of Jews sold all their belongings in anticipation of immediate return. Uh, there are tragic stories. There was, a, there was a messianic pretender in Cyprus who told the Jewish community there to gather at the, at the edge of a cliff overlooking the sea, and he was going to transport them by magical flight to wow. the land of Israel. And, of, and, and the community leapt to their deaths. So what you see here is, is in some ways is almost a farcical playing out of this longing for the land, but how deeply ingrained this expectation was. So there it is, straight right. through Jewish history. Right, right, thank you. And you actually answered my next question was, or exactly that, did they ever try and think of returning? So that sort of leads me to like the anti-Zionism, which I think is really just anti-Judaism at this time. Um, the Jews suffered a number of great tragedies. They were heavily persecuted from the Inquisition to pogroms in the Europe and the Middle East. Um, and also during this time, they ran into the explosion of Islam and Christianity, right? Which I think you write in your book, a universal face. They want everybody to take on their religion. While Judaism is different and it's just for a select few not to be the world, but I think, as you said, a light unto the world. Um, this is why Judaism now, with, 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 this, with this important caveat, Ari, which yeah. is that one can convert into Judaism. It's, right. not a, it's not a closed club. It's not a race. It's a, you know, it's, it, it's, its borders are, are, are permeable. Right. It's more complex than that, right? It, it's the discussion on race and ethnicity and a religion. Yeah. But exactly, yeah. you can convert into it. Um, you know, so what was this, you know, the anti, I, I don't know if it's, once again, it's called anti-Zionism, but what was sort of the anti-Jewish 
you know, hatred or prom that was promulgated during this uh, time? Like, what was the result on the Jewish diaspora of people trying to sort of, maybe it was converting Jews, maybe it was persecuting Jews. So what was sort of the, the result on their longing to return? Was it to stifle that? Was it just to, you know, had people um, give up ever a dream of something like that? Well, it seems to me that Jews never, never gave up on the dream of return. And throughout the diaspora, throughout the history of these 1800 years of exile, there were periodic attempts to return not only through messianic adventurism, but more practical ways. There were small Jewish communities that, that made this very difficult and dangerous trip. You know, and it's, it's hard for us to conceive of, um, of how difficult it was to travel in, in, in the Middle Ages, for example and uh, to, to go off to the unknown in the Middle East. And yet Jewish small groups of Jews continually through the period of exile uh, did make that trip and did, did put down roots in, in the land of Israel. Right, and I guess uh, various, various people that control the land, I guess were sometimes welcoming and sometimes not welcoming of these Jews that were trying yeah. to Right. Yeah, you know the the low point were were the Crusades when right. when Jews were massacred and, and forbidden to live in the land. Uh, under Islam, uh, it wasn't easy, but Jews were permitted to live in the land um, for the most part, and um, and there were, as I say, thriving Jewish communities. The first census that was ever taken uh, of Jerusalem uh, was in the um, in the mid 19th century. And uh, there was already then a, major a Jewish majority in the city uh, under, under the Ottoman Turks. Now there was not a Jewish majority in the land, but there was, there was in Jerusalem. Right. So this sort of takes me to the next stage of discussion where I wanna focus on, you know, Herzl founding the Zionist movement and the name, the term Zionism, uh, Nathan Birnbaum coming up with the term, coining the term. And this was the movement to establish a homeland for the Jewish people. Uh, there were many different forms of Zionism during this time. There was political, labor, revisionist. So I just want to sort of take them one at a time. So let's start with the Zionism as Herzl understood it, which I believe was political Zionism. What was the idea behind this form of Zionism? Well, Herzl's Zionism was very um, basic and, uh, and straightforward. It was an attempt to solve what Europe called the Jewish problem. The Jewish problem was the problem of Jewish existence. Right. And Herzl's vision, Herzl's premonition, was that the Jews of Europe are sitting on a volcano. And he saw in Zionism a very straightforward rescue movement. And because for Herzl, I would call Herzl's Zionism the Zionism of rescue. And because he was so focused on the need to physically save the Jews of Europe, of course, Herzl couldn't imagine uh, how, how, um, uh, how accurate his, his, his fears, how fully right. his fears would be, would be realized. But he had an intuition. And this Herzl Zionism of rescue overrode all other considerations, including the Jewish attachment to the land of Israel. 
Uh, in the Zionist Congress of uh, 1903, Herzl brought a plan to the, to the delegates, uh, an offer from the British to offer to, to, to set aside a part of, um, of, uh, of what today is Kenya, and then was simply, it was called Uganda, right. to set aside a part of that territory uh, for, Jewish, uh, for Jewish refugees from Eastern Europe. And Herzl, Herzl reassured the delegates that this was a way station to the land of Israel. He had failed to negotiate uh, an, an arrangement with the Turkish uh, Sultan to, to allow more Jews to move to, to the land of Israel. And so Herzl said, look, we have to save millions of Jews. The British are offering us a temporary refuge. And his vision really was to save the Jews of Russia who were threatened with pogroms. Their lives were, were, were tangibly uh, at risk. And the revolt against what became known as the Uganda plan was actually led by the Russian Zionist delegates. Chaim Weizmann, who later became the first president of the state of Israel, Right. led as a young man led the revolt against Herzl and said that Herzl is is off what Herzl is suggesting is a betrayal of thousands of years of Jewish attachment to the land of Israel Zionism will be about the land of Israel or nothing at all now it's interesting to think about <clears throat> this offer Herzl meant well right he was really trying to save his people right a remedy for anti-semitism Yes, and the very Jews who were suffering most from anti-Semitism, who were most threatened by anti-Semitism, were precisely those who refused any other solution than the land of Israel. Now, if Zionism had adopted Herzl's plan, uh, there would have, I think, been two consequences. One is there would have been a, a spot on the planet where the Jews of Europe would have been able to flee in the 1930s. Right. Herzl's plan might have saved several million Jews. On the other hand, had Zionism accepted this offer of a British colony in Africa to which Jews had no claim, no indigenous connection, then Zionism would truly have become a, um, a colonialist movement. Right. a tragic colonialist movement, a movement uh, intended not to plunder and conquer, but to rescue. Nevertheless, Zionism under Herzl's vision would have really been colonialist. Right. What saved the honor of Zionism was the revolt of the young people led by Chaim Weizmann. Right. And so it was almost going from, which leads me to the sort of next form, you had this remedy of Zionism that Herzl started, started with, and then it was really about the return to the land, which brings me to labor Zionism, who believed that the land could only be created through their efforts and the Jewish working class setting the land. So who was leading this? And, you know, what was this sort of movement at that time? Now, the labor Zionist movement, uh, it's interesting you're talking about back to the land, right. because all of Zionism was talking about back to the land of Israel. But labor Zionism made that concrete. Right. Not only the land of Israel in terms of a state and a territory, but the physical land of Israel, 
that needed to be worked and plowed and planted. And the dream of labor Zionism, which was socialist and very quickly became the dominant strain in Zionism and led the Zionist movement. David Ben-Gurion, Golda Meir, Levi Eshkol, these were, these were the leaders of labor Zionism in its early pre-state years who went on to become uh, prime ministers of Israel. <clears throat> and um, labor Zionism was led by young people, by teenagers, literally teenagers wow. and young people in their early 20s. And we tend to forget this about Zionism. Zionism was a youth movement. Herzl, who was the grand old man of Zionism, dies at the age of 43. Wow. This is all happening. Herzl's whole drama is happening in his late 30s, early right. 40s. And, and the, the call, Herzl's call, and then the call of labor Zionism, is answered not primarily by older people, but by young people who feel that Jewish life has become untenable, unsustainable. And this is a, this is a sign of hope. And so the, the labor Zionism is an attempt to combine two ideologies, socialism in its various forms, right. ranging from social democracy to Marxism and communism. You have the whole range of, social, of socialist thought playing out within labor Zionism. Labor Zionism is a catch-all phrase. Within labor Zionism, when you, when you do a sharper resolution, you'll see social, social democrat labor Zionism, Marxist labor Zionism, and quite hardcore communist labor Zionism. And uh, social, social democratic labor Zionism became the dominant strain, right. but, but Marxist Zionism was a very important minority within labor Zionism. The movement known as Hashomer Atzair, the Young Watchmen, which was pro-Soviet, it was communist, uh, was essential to settling uh, the land, to working the land. They were they were in the forefront of the pioneering return, and so labor Zionism is taken with these two visions: the vision of the Jewish people's return to to the land of Israel. Right. And the literal return to land that would transform the Jewish character right. from the ghetto Jew who was a small tradesman, uh, a small businessman, and, and then in the 19th century in parts of Western Europe became active in the stock market. And labor Zionism was very opposed to this. Right. Labor Zionism wanted to turn the Jews into farmers and workers. Right. So the country had to be built on their backs. Right. Yeah. And they didn't yes. want to use the Arab labor. They wanted to, to build the country themselves. Now, this is a very important point, Ari, because uh, this created great tension with the Palestinian Arabs living in the land. And labor, the labor, the young people of labor were horrified at the idea of, of using uh, cheap labor. Right. of hiring Palestinian workers. They insisted on doing all the work themselves. They would not be colonialists. Right. But it created a great deal of bitterness because Arabs were looking for work. And so this, this is a very painful uh, dilemma 
that the young labor Zionists had. And it really shows something about how Zionism in many ways was in a no-win situation. Whatever it would have done, in some sense, it would have been wrong. Had Zionism, uh, had labor Zionism taken up cheap labor on a massive scale, it would have been accused, uh, rightly so, of exploitation and of colonialism. Right. Uh, by, by refusing to, to go that route, labor Zionism created a great deal of bitterness right. among Palestinians. Right, right. And that actually leads perfectly into sort of the next iteration of that, which is the revisionist Zionists, led by Jan Batinsky and Begin. So, you know, who, who understood the idea that friction there is something that they needed to prepare for. So what was really the idea behind the revisionists? So revisionist Zionism uh, was the, the right-wing version of Zionism. It opposed building the future state of Israel on a socialist basis. It was more capitalist orientation. It believed that the way to prepare the 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 future state was by encouraging capital to invest in Israel in, in, in the future state rather than, than through utopian agricultural experiments. And uh, I think they were both right, personally. Right. And I think we needed both. Right. And, um, and revision of Zionism was also much more uh, territorially maximalist. Uh, it envisioned uh, expanded borders for a future Jewish state. Labor Zionism was always willing to accept uh, partition and territorial compromise. <clears throat> the, the revisionists were not, uh, because they, they envisioned millions of Jews coming to the land. Uh, they thought that most of European Jewry would come, and of course the Holocaust ended that hope. But uh, in those early years, we're talking about the 1920s and 30s, the years before the Holocaust, revisionist Zionism was really trying to prepare the way for a mass rescue of European Jewry, which never happened. Right. And it didn't happen in large part because the British didn't allow it to happen. And the Arabs were pressuring the British to keep Jewish refugees out of the land. Right. Uh, and that really created a... Um, a, um, a sense of no escape from Europe. Right. And many, many victims in the Holocaust were killed because they could not find refuge in, in, in the land of Israel. And so the revisionists were, were trying to organize a mass rescue. Uh, the labor Zionists came late to the idea of rescue. They didn't quite, they didn't catch on early enough. And the revisionists were way ahead Right. of the curve on that. And the final major difference, uh, which is really what you, you mentioned earlier, is that the revisionists believed that there was going to be a confrontation over the land, an armed confrontation, and there was no way to avoid it. The, the Arab world was dead set against the Jews returning and the Jews had to arm and learn how to defend themselves. <clears throat> and uh, Jabotinsky wrote a famous essay called The Iron Wall, right. in which he said that the only way to convince the Arab world that we are here to stay is by proving that they can't, they will not be able to destroy us. 
Right. And um, and so I would I would just say one more thing here, which which to me is really, uh, in some ways, the heart of the debate between the right wing revisionists and the left wing laborites, and this division is is at the foundation of Zionism. Through the, through the whole pre-state period, the 20s, 30s, 40s, into the 50s and 60s, it's this deep antipathy between the right wing led by first Jabotinsky and then Menachem Begin and, uh, and the left wing led primarily by Ben Gurion and then afterwards by Golda Meir and right. others. And um, what really defines the core of this divide is that to my mind, is that labor Zionism envisioned a total makeover of the ghetto Jew, the Jew of exile. Right. The Jew of exile needed to change, needed to, to, be, to become a, a modern secular person and give up religion. Uh, the, the, the labor vision was of a socialist, a worker, a farmer, and so labor really wanted to do a total, a total makeover of the, of the Jewish personality. The revisionists didn't care what your profession was. You could be a worker and a farmer or a capitalist or, 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 or a, a stock market, uh, a speculator. It didn't matter to them. They didn't care if you were religious or secular. None of that mattered to the revisionists. The revisionists were interested in changing the Jewish character in only one way, teaching the Jews how to defend themselves, right. how to use a weapon. Right. And the revisionists, in, they were the ones who envisioned an army. Right. And, we now, and we now know that they were right because right. there is no state of Israel without the, the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces. Uh, that is core to, to, uh, to what the Zionist project became teaching right. the Jews how to defend themselves. Right. And two necessary parts, I think, to Zionism to succeed were the labor Zionists and revisionists. And, you know, in your book, you write, when the Jews accepted a state, uh, Ben-Gurion had to ask Zionism for some humility when accepting the state on part of the land. And then almost, and I, I would love you to touch on that real quick, but also that almost leads us into the anti-Zionism, where one of the groups I think many people don't maybe think of is like the Sternists led by Abraham Stern, and they kind of rejected Zionism for more messianic reasons, where rejecting the idea of Zionism was to uh, rejecting, rejecting it that, you know, there was this problem to solve an anti-Semitism versus their idea of conquering the, the ancient land uh, of Israel. Yeah, so I mean, talk a little bit about just that dynamic. Look, you had so many, so many strains in Zionism and. You know, Zionism, Zionism's claim from the beginning was that it is the national liberation movement of the Jewish people. Now, many Jews in the early years, especially, were opposed to Zionism for religious reasons uh, or for reasons of uh, fear that, that they would be accused of dual loyalty. They wouldn't be able to, to, to assimilate into their host countries. There were many reasons why Jews, uh, why many Jews oppose Zionism. Right. But what, what made the Zionist claim, the Zionist dare to represent the whole Jewish people was the extraordinary diversity 
of ideologies within Zionism. You had representations of just about every conceivable Jewish faction and idea. And by the 1940s, certainly by the Holocaust, the overwhelming majority of the Jewish people had come around to the Zionist idea. So Herzl prematurely proclaimed Zionism as the national movement of the whole Jewish people. Right. But 40 years later, that, that claim is fulfilled. And so I'm, I'm mentioning that as the context in which to discuss all of these sub-ideologies. Right. So you had the Sternists, who um, were known as the British called them the Stern Gang. Right. Uh, they were the most radical of the uh, Jewish underground groups uh, before the state. And uh, radical in their, in their terror tactics, they used assassination. And, um, and radical in their ideology. They believed in, in expanded biblical borders from the right. Nile to the Euphrates, uh, rebuilding the temple. At the same time, and this is one of the interesting paradoxes of why it's so hard to pinpoint particular groups and say, ah, so you're right wing. Right. Because the Sternists also at the same time envisioned a joint Jewish-Arab anti-imperialist front right. to throw the British and the French, to throw all the European imperial powers out of the Middle East. Right. And so their ideology was a kind of combination of radical right, right. and radical left. Right. And um, it's interesting, just parenthetically, one of the first articles that I wrote when I moved to Israel in 1982 uh, was about the Sternists and, uh, and, and, and showing how Israel's far right and far left both came out right. of this tiny movement. There were maybe a hundred Sternists, all told. Right. There were never more than a hundred people, right. you know, and yet they had such an outsized impact right. on, on the state of Israel. Yitzhak Shamir, uh, the prime minister of Israel right. in the late 80s, was one of the leaders of, of the Stern group. So, um, so there's an endless variation. Right. So who were just some of the other Jewish anti-Zionists? People like Ahad Am, who like preached more of like a cultural Zionism, I guess it would be. So I don't yeah, know if like anti-Zionism, but it was like, you know, maybe the culture returns of, but not yeah, a state, right? Yeah, Ahad Am was a contemporary of Herzl's, and he was Herzl's great rival within the Zionist movement. Ahad Am was a brilliant essayist. And his argument was that the majority of world's Jews, the strong majority of world's Jews, are going to continue living in the diaspora, that there's no real chance, given the fact that the Ottoman Turks control this land, there's no real chance for Herzl's vision of a Jewish state to happen. Right. And so let's try to create a spiritual center in the land of Israel of Jews who speak Hebrew, uh, that's their vernacular, they're creating a literature in Hebrew, culture, music, and they will influence and revitalize, spiritually revitalize, the diaspora. Now, Ahad Am was wrong in many ways. He was wrong because um, a majority of the diaspora actually did end up in the state of Israel. Right. Israel today is the world's largest Jewish community. And um, he was wrong as well, Ahad Am, tragically wrong, and Herzl, of course, was right, tragically right, in, uh, in foreseeing catastrophe and that the Jews needed right. to be rescued. 
but I, I think that a Hada'am is particularly relevant today because the role that Israel does play for the diaspora is, um, is as a kind of cultural center, uh, revitalizing much of uh, Jewish identity. Right. And I guess he also couldn't probably have predicted the Ottoman Empire that lasted for 500 years, all of a sudden disintegrating in a world war, which really changed everything. Um, and yeah. so then just to touch on a couple others, there was also the anti-Zionist Jews like Trotsky, as you mentioned, sort of like the communists. Um, just to read a quick passage from him, it could almost come out of the mouths of the, the Jewish anti-Zionist today. He stated, socialism will solve the Jewish question, not Palestine. The Jewish question is bound up with the complete emancipation of humanity. Um, he went on to say that an attempt to solve the Jewish question through the migration of Jews of Palestine can be seen for what it is, a tragic mockery of the Jewish people. Never was it so clear that the salvation of the Jewish people is bound up inseparably with the overthrow of the capitalist system. So I, I think you have people like this as well as you sort of touched on these communists who, you know, they were fighting this revolution and it wasn't about a return to land. It was sort of the emancipation of people as a whole, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that um, many young Jews in the early part of the 20th century were torn between um, the, the vision of world redemption that communism was presenting and, um, and the vision of redemption of the Jewish people that Zionism was presenting. Now, the socialist Zionists, the labor Zionists, tried to mediate between these two, these two ideologies by, by envisioning the future Jewish state as the world's great laboratory, the great experiment for voluntary communism. The kibbutz movement, which was the world's most successful example of voluntary collectivism, of communism, of democratic communism, which today sounds like a, an oxymoron, but the kibbutzim actually created democratic communism. Right. And so the labor Zionists said that we will, we will impact on humanity, we will help redeem the world by creating a model of, uh, of human transformation, of, of voluntary, voluntary collectivism. You know, in the Soviet Union and other communist countries, there was enforced, coerced collectivism. And, and in Israel, the labor Zionist movement created voluntary collectivism right. on a mass scale, which, which had never been done before. And, uh, and in fact, uh, the kibbutzim were instrumental in right. founding the state. So I think that the labor Zionists, you know, if, if you look at the, the argument between uh, the Zionists and the communists, uh, and in fact, Chaim Weizmann, who I mentioned earlier, the first president of Israel, as a student in Switzerland in the early part of uh, the, first, the first decade of, of the 20th century, uh, famously debated Trotsky. They had a, um, like a three-day debate in a cafe, I believe it was in Basel, Switzerland, uh, where hundreds of Jewish students were gathered to listen. And they were debating for the souls of, of these young Russian Jews who were in exile in Switzerland. And Trotsky was trying to win them over to revolutionary communism and Weizmann was trying to win them over to Zionism. And Weizmann writes about this very powerfully in his autobiography, um, um, it'll come to me, but. Uh, <clears throat> so also just to touch on um, 
I guess, outside of the Jewish perspective of anti-Zionism, from like an Arab perspective, or even, you know, I guess, British perspective, you know, from the Arab perspective, I guess it was, was there simply that Jews cannot have a state of their own? Was it a total rejection of the idea of Zionism? Uh, was there any nuance maybe from people such as Faisal? No, I don't think, I don't think the Arabs would have objected if the Jews decided to create a state in Uganda. Right, right. You know, this was really about creating a state uh, in the heart of the Arab world. Right. The Arab, you know, the, the Middle East is a homogeneous or relatively homogeneous region. The main divide is between Shia, Shia and Sunni. And, um, and here comes the Jews saying that uh, this land is ours, this little strip of land on the Mediterranean coast between the sea, the desert and the sea is ours. Right. And, um, and the Arab world said, no way, you know, this is, this region is, uh, is Arab, is Muslim for thousands of kilometers around. We are the right. only non-Arab and non-Muslim state. Right. So that sort of takes us from, you know, today, like after 1948 uh, till today. And I think, you know, your book and everybody should read it, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, I feel is almost like you debating with yourself about Zionism and also like reflecting on what Zionism means to you today. Um, yeah. You know, so once the state was created, the return and establishing a state, uh, you know, Zionism occurred that we've been talking about. So is it really now the continuation of the development of the state of Israel as the homeland for the Jewish people? Like, what is Zionism today? Well, it's a great question. Um, for me, I'll, I'll start by saying what I feel Zionism is not today. Okay. It's not what everybody thinks it is, okay. which is the, the ideology of, of, a, of Jewish sovereignty, Jewish statehood. And the reason that that's not, for me, that's irrelevant it's because Zionism won. Right. The state exists. The moment the state was created, Zionism fulfilled that part of its job. If Zionism has any relevance today, it is as the ideology of Jewish peoplehood. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean. Ask, ask Jews, who are we? Well, who are the Jews? What are we? Right. You'll get 10 different answers. Right. Well, we're a religion, we're a family, we're an ethnicity, we're a people, we're a nation. Well, yes, all of the above. But what Zionism says is that the common denominator, the ground that all Jews share is a shared sense of belonging to the same people. Right. So that Jew is the noun and the kind of Jew you are is the adjective. Right. I'm a religious Jew. I'm an Orthodox Jew. I'm a Reformed Jew. I'm a socialist. I'm what, whatever it is. And, and that is, to my mind, the strong argument of Zionism, which, for example, the ultra-Orthodox ask them, who are the Jews? And they'll say, well, we are a religion. And Zionism has a very different uh, way of understanding what unites all of us. And you can be a Jew in good standing and not be religious. Right. And that is a, is a um, to my mind, a very Zionist idea. Right. And, and in the book, you talk about how Jews have returned to the land of Israel, but have not yet redeemed in the land of Israel. What did you mean by that? 
Well, I, I would I would expand that to several on several levels. First of all, we're not yet redeemed because we're still at war. <clears throat> we're still um, to some extent under siege. And we haven't fully found our place in the Middle East. It's changing. Right. More and more of the Middle East is, is welcoming Israel, is, is coming to terms with our legitimacy. And I think there's an irony here, which is that the more the Arab world makes its peace with Israel's legitimacy, the more parts of the progressive West are questioning Israel's right to exist, which is, to my mind, you know, just, just inexplicable. Right. And, um, and so that's one aspect, that Israel, Israel is on its way, I think, to, be, to coming home in the Middle East. We are an Eastern people. We right. were born in the East. We went into dispersion. But now a majority of the Jewish people lives in the state of Israel. Right. We live, we're back in the Middle East. Right. Of course, there were always strong Jewish communities in the East, in the Arab world. But now you have the world's largest Jewish community in the Middle East. And the Middle East, as I say, is starting to come to terms with our, with our presence here. Right. Um, but we're still in that process. The second point of not being redeemed is, is the internal condition of Israeli society. We are a society that's tremendously divided. There's great tension within Israeli society. Uh, we, we pull in very different directions, religious, secular, Eastern Jews, Western Jews, right-wing, left-wing, Arab-Israeli, Jewish-Israeli. There are so many different, we call them tribes here, right? because they really, each, each group is a kind of its, 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 own, its own world. And this is a very small country. It's a very small space. And, and to have so much diversity and so much antagonism right. among these groups um, means that we're not yet redeemed. Right. So that sort of brings us to modern anti-Zionism. And today, really, it's I see it as threefold. There's the ultra-religious who believe that only the Messiah can bring back a true Jewish state and we should wait for the Mashiach. Um, there's a large number of the Palestinian Muslim and Arab community who are still fighting the war of 1948 and refuse to allow the Jewish state anywhere um, in the historic land of Israel, Levant. And the third is Jewish organization and individuals like Peter Beinard and Jewish Voice for Peace. Um, I think just for time, we can skip the ultra-Orthodox. Um, but what is the argument being made by these Jewish anti-Zionists? And is there any legit legitimacy to their claims? Uh, there, there are, I would say, different different kinds of Jewish anti-Zionists, and I'm, and we're speaking really on the left. There's different motivations. Right. Uh, there are those who say that because Israel has become what seems to be uh, a permanent occupier of another people, it has lost its moral legitimacy, its right to exist, and therefore Israel needs to give up the notion of being a Jewish state and accept the fact that Jews are going to be a minority in this land, which basically means leaving 7 million Jews as a, the world's largest Jewish community defenseless right. in, um, in one of the most dangerous regions on the planet. Right. So that's, that's one idea. The second is a more um, 
ideologically rooted notion that that nationalism, the notion of Jews belonging to one territory is, um, is anachronistic. The Jews became in exile a world people, a worldly people, a cosmopolitan people. And um, we are now a diaspora people. Uh, there's a synagogue that uh, in Chicago headed right. by an anti-Zionist rabbi that just declared anti-Zionism one of its core Jewish values. And they say, we are a diaspora people. Right. We're not a people of a, of a nation. The only problem with that is that we actually are a people of a nation, right. not abstractly, not ideologically, but in practice. Right. If, the, if a majority of, uh, if the world's largest Jewish community is in the state of Israel, then that means that we're not primarily a diaspora people anymore. We're right. actually primarily a people of a, of a homeland. Right. And so leaving aside the ideological argument for a moment, and I, I, you know, I embrace diaspora. I want diaspora to thrive. I think it's great for the Jewish people that we, that we are a worldly people. Right. I love when I travel, uh, the fact that I encounter Jewish communities wherever I go. Right. And that's, that's, that's precious to me. Right. That right. gives me a, a, a tactile connection with, with countries and cultures all over the world. Right. And, and, and it expands who we are, but at our core, the core of the Jewish people is our attachment, our belonging to a land. Right. And I didn't make that up. Abraham made it up. If right. he made it up, I don't know. <laughs> right. so, that, so that was almost going to bring me to my next question, which I think you just answered as you're talking about the Chicago synagogue, was is it possible, as the anti-Zionists insist, to separate Zionism from Judaism? And I think what you're saying is that's not possible. No, you know, it's interesting because there, there are today two major groups of Jewish anti-Zionists. There, there are parts of the ultra-Orthodox world Right. A majority of the ultra-Orthodox today are not anti-Zionists. They once were. A right. majority have already made their peace with a Jewish state, even a secular Jewish state, as much as they don't like it. Uh, they don't deny its legitimacy. You have, you have a few groups within the ultra-Orthodox world that deny the legitimacy of a Jewish state. And then you have parts of the Jewish left that have become anti-Zionist. But there's a major difference between this synagogue in Chicago that's on the far left and the ultra-Orthodox the ultra anti-Zionists. The ultra-Orthodox anti-Zionists never deny our connection to the land of Israel. Right. And they believe that one day the Jews will return to the land and have national sovereignty there. But their argument is that it must be the Messiah Right. Who who brings us back, not right. a secular Zionist movement. Right. Now, that's an argument over timing. It's an argument over how to return, not whether to right. return the the innovation. The and, and, and I say innovation really with 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 a tongue deeply in cheek, the innovation here. Is, is to cut yourself off emotionally from the land of Israel completely. Right. 
And uh, that's, you know, we, we saw that happening in the 19th century in parts of the reform movement, uh, which changed. Uh, we saw it happening in, in uh, the Jewish socialist Bund of the late 19th century, um, which was a, a, a radical socialist secular group, which also cut itself off from the land of Israel. And now we're seeing the return of 19th century anti-Zionism under new guise. Right. So that leads me to the next question. On the Palestinian side, a lot of people from leaders of even Mahabund Abbas, they deny the holy sites are Jewish. They deny any Jewish ties to the land. They claim Jews are really Khazars. Um, first, like, are these claims anti-Semitic? And I guess also stepping out, because this is a, a, an audience question as well, is just in general the anti-Zionist movement today anti-Semitic? So before, before I try to answer your question, let's take a step back and look at anti-Semitism. <clears throat> For me, my definition of anti-Semitism is that it is the, the process that transforms Jews into the Jew, right. that transforms Jews into the symbol of whatever a given civilization defines as its most objectionable qualities. Right. And so under classical Christianity, uh, before Vatican II, before, before the Holocaust and before the interfaith movement, uh, the Catholic church, for example, uh, accused the Jews of being Christ killers. Now for, for the church, there could be no greater offense than to be a Christ killer. Right. Under Islam, the Jews were called the killers of prophets. For a religion that venerates a prophet, the prophet, right. again, there's no greater offense than to be a, uh, a killer of prophets. Uh, under Marxism, the Jews were the ultimate capitalists, worst, the worst sin for, right. for a Marxist. Right. Under Nazism, the Jews were the ultimate race polluters. And for a racial ideology, that was the greatest offense. Right. Now, if you take that process of transforming the Jews into the symbol of whatever qualities a society or civilization deems its most loathsome, then, and I call that the anti-Semitism the, the anti of symbols. Right because it's the symbolizing of the Jew. Right. The, it's turning the Jew into something abstract. Um, and then take it to our time. What is the most objectionable qualities, the, the worst sin of our civilization, of this time? It's to be a racist, right. apartheid, colonialist, warmonger. And lo and behold, I've just summed up the case against Israel. Right. Israel is the symbol of colonialism, ethnic cleansing, uh, apartheid, um, genocide. I spoke on a campus not long ago and uh, dozens of students uh, interrupted uh, the talk and held up signs saying no normalization with genocide. So now right. we're being accused of genocide. Right. In other words, you can accuse us, you can accuse Israel 
of anything, any offense, and that fits the pattern of the symbolizing of the Jews. In this case, the symbolizing of the Jewish state. But it gets a little more complicated because if you ask the question, is anti-Zionism anti-Semitism? Well, there are many Jews today who are anti-Zionist and I wouldn't call them anti-Semites. Palestinians are anti-Zionist but I wouldn't say that they're anti-Zionists necessarily for anti-Semitic reasons. Some of them are. Right. There certainly is anti-Semitism in Palestinian society quite strongly. But I could see how a Palestinian would be anti-Zionist without having personal animus against Jews. They want their, necess- what they see as their land back. Yeah, it's not necessarily linked. I think that there's something in, in, in Jews that has a need for clarity in dealing with our enemies. We're used to being innocent victims and we're used to our enemies being being murderous, being, being completely wrong. And the problem today is that because we have reclaimed power, because we are a state, because we play by the rules of the nations, we're no longer entirely innocent. The only way you can be innocent is if you're helpless. Then you can be innocent. So we're no longer completely innocent. And our enemies have some valid arguments. Not everything Israel does is right, from my point of view. And so we're not completely innocent, and they're not completely guilty. And this makes, this makes us very uncomfortable. And so we need anti-Zionists to be anti-Semites. For me, my feeling is that in the age when Jew, when the Jewish people has reclaimed power, and I say, thank God we've reclaimed power. Thank God we're able to defend ourselves. But that complicates our, our moral position because powers is morally complicated. And so I don't need anti-Zionists to be anti-Semites for me to recognize that anti-Zionism is a mortal threat to the well-being of the Jewish people. If God forbid the vision of anti-Zionism were to succeed and Israel as a Jewish state would disappear, the first thing that would happen is 7 million Jews would, would be in physical danger of their lives. That's the first thing that would happen. The second thing that would happen is tremendous demoralization in the Jewish people. The only way that we recovered as quickly and as well as we did from the Holocaust, which should have been a death blow for the Jewish people, was because there was Zionism and the state of Israel waiting to be born. And so all of this Jewish energy went into rebuilding and creating the state. And that gave us new life. If, If it turns out that that was wrong, that it ends in another Jewish disaster. I don't know that the Jewish people will have the the spiritual reserves to to regenerate again. I think that we as a people will be finished. That's not to say that there won't continue to be Jewish communities in different parts of the world, but as a a flourishing people, the end of Israel is the end of the Jewish people. And so I don't care 
if if anti-Zionists are anti-Semites, they are an existential threat to the Jewish people. As far as I'm concerned today, the greatest threat to Jewish well-being is anti-Zionism. And and again, I don't need you to be anti-Semitic for you to be an enemy. And for me to deal with you, I'm going to defend myself against you, whether or not you're anti-Semitic. I couldn't care less. Right. What, what you think of, whether you think Jews have too much money or whether, or whether our noses are too big, I don't care. Doesn't, it's not interesting to me. What's interesting to me is that you want to destroy the source of Jewish vitality. Right. That's all. Right. That's enough. Right. And I think that's why I, I agree. I think people need to be careful of calling any anti-Zionist, anti-Semite, but as you discussed, you know, the calculated strategy of turning the word Zionism almost into this evil thing like Nazism is really feels like anti-Semitism. And that's what uh, movement is, especially yes. because 85 percent of Jews are Zionists. So all of a sudden, yes. if Zionism is okay. evil. When when Zionism, when anti-Zionism turns us into the symbol of right. evil. Right. They're on very dangerous historical right. exactly. ground. They are they are they are taking up the symbolization of the right. Jews. As you discussed. Right. And so that's that's that part of it. And I would say that that when you are obsessed with Israel's sins, real or imagined, if you know Amnesty International is going around the world now, going to different parliaments and and holding sessions on on apartheid Israel. This is while Ukraine is burning, while China is is building concentration camps for, for a million of its Muslim citizens. That to me is an obsession. And if you are obsessed with the with the evils of the Jews, uh, you're you're on shaky ground. Right, right. So just to get few, a few questions in here real quick, um, this one I think is interesting. Is Zionism progressive? Zionism is progressive. Zionism is reactionary. Zionism is religious. Zionism is secular. Uh, Zionism is capitalist. Zionism, not too much left, but still Zionism is also socialist. Zionism is many things. There are many flavors of Zionism. One flavor is progressive. And um, I, I can't say that Zionism is inherently progressive in the same way that no national identity is inherently progressive. Is, is being French progressive? Is being American progressive? Well, there are elements. There, there, there is a progressive camp in America. But as, as, as I think we know, there are also some Americans who actually might not be that progressive. So right. that's Zionism, you know, right. it's, it's, it's the range. I'll, I'll tell you this, in my view, that Zionism brought democracy to the Middle East, a region that's never known democracy. They brought minorities into government and into their courts, which is not known in the Middle East. They brought the environment and fixed the environment and drained swamps Zionism had a female leader of the country within 20 years. I mean, if you talk about Zion, uh, progressive causes, there you go. You know, democracy, universal health care, uh, schooling, 
you know, Zionism to a region that's never known these things are all progressive causes. So I, I would say that yeah. is one thing I would like to say. And then I think as a fan of Jabotinsky my, myself, you go back to Homo homini lupus and he talks about the black condition in America, the Kurds and what the Jews were going through. And there you have intersectionality. So <laughs> another form of progressive values, I think Zionism has uh, sort of- I'm, I'm, Ari, I'm very uncomfortable with that line of argument. Okay. Uh, be, for, for a very simple reason. What happens if Israel, God forbid, uh, stops being a democratic state? What happens if we become Hungary, or, uh, or worse, Russia? Do we lose our right to exist? Does Hungary have a right to exist, even though it's not a democratic state? Uh, Germ did Germany lose its right to exist? I mean, to take the most extreme example, there's something in the conditionality of Israel's right to exist that I find uh, outrageous. And I don't need to prove Israel's right to exist by demonstrating that we brought democracy or we or or, or we have a wonderful health. We do have we have a great healthcare right. system. What happens if that healthcare system disappears and we adopt the American model? Do we then have less of a right to exist? I I I'm not I'm not interested in proving my right to exist. Right, right, and that's not what I was talking about. I'm not talking about is that. I know, but it could right be it existence. could be heard that way. You know, right. I think it's important. It's important. And uh, look, I think that Zionism, you know, you, you're right in the sense that Zionism, um, a majority of Zionism, of, of Zionists, saw Zionism as a democratic movement. Uh, and a majority of Zionists were, were socialists uh, in its formative years. Uh, but, but that doesn't matter to me. That's, that doesn't um, reinforce or undermine the inherent legitimacy of the Jewish people's absolutely. right to national sovereignty in this land. Right, right. No, I absolutely agree on that point. I'm sort of talking about Zionism as a, as a movement and sort of progressive American sort of causes these days and what they champion and what the Jews have been able to bring to that region, which beyond, you know, not talking about whether the state of Israel is legitimate or not legitimate, just in what they've been able to achieve is pretty remarkable in a region that's never known um, such things. The one last question, because I know we all got to run and, and we're at time. And but I think this is a good one to sort of end it on. Can anti-Zionism and Zionism live together? Is there any sort of Venn diagram that allows this in certain parameters or are they diametrically opposed? Well, if, if the definition of anti-Zionism is the denial of the Jewish people's right <clears throat> to national sovereignty in at least part of the land of Israel, and the definition of Zionism, at least historically, was the right of the Jewish people to national sovereignty in part of the land of Israel. Uh, well, I, I think that these two movements are in fundamental loggerheads. Right. And um, uh, one of them is going to have to yield. Right. Uh, and it won't be Zionism. Right. Right. I don't think people realize, unfortunately, I don't think many in the Palestinian community that are uh, from Hamas to the anti-Zionists realize the ties to the land the Jews have and that Jews oh. are not some foreign invaders and are not going anywhere. And I think that's actually probably 
Unfortunately, the school books that teach that in the Palestinian society are doing their own people a very big disservice because they don't understand that we aren't packing up and going anywhere. And what they're doing, you know, that what that line of, uh, of argument is doing is feeding false hopes on the right. part for Palestinians that if only they, they, they persist long enough, right. we're just going to tire of this place and get up and go. You know, we have this deep, deep sense of being custodians of a, of a 2000 year dream of longing. And it was fulfilled in our time. And that imposes a tremendous responsibility on us. Uh, it also gives, gives us, I think, great joy to, to be living out this story for all of its complexities and difficulties. And, um, and so the sooner the Arab world generally and the Palestinian national movement in particular right. comes to terms with the permanence of our presence here, the closer we'll be, hopefully, to, to resolving the conflict. Right. Agreed. Um, so anyhow, we're at the time. So thank you, everybody, for joining us today. This was an incredible discussion. Uh, next week, we'll be joined by Madi Freeman to discuss how Israel is covered in the international press, which is going to be, be a great one. That'll be interesting. Um, make sure to sign up for that conversation, all discussions at ccfpeace.com, ccfpeace.com, where you can also donate and support our work. Before we go, Yossi, uh, where can people find you on social media and learn more about your work? I'm on Facebook. Uh, I'm on Twitter. And, um, and I have a website, which I occasionally look at, uh, <laughs> yossikleinalevi.com. And there, I, there are articles on there and some of my favorite Israeli music and various other Amazing. Other Amazing. And people make sure to pick up Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. Um, it, it really covers a lot of what we talked today, I think. It, it really um, is really an impactful uh, a book. So we hope to see everybody at our future events. Please stay safe. Thank you, Yossi. Well, thank you, Ari. And thank you all for, uh, for joining. Take care. You too. 